Welcome. Uh, I'm Ted Ruger, Dean of Penn Law School, and I, it, I am so honored, uh, President Perse, to, to welcome you uh, to Penn Law School today. This is an auspicious, truly auspicious day in the history of the University of Pennsylvania. Um, we are grateful and honored to have you, and we look forward to your um, remarks. I also want to welcome the, the full delegation uh, that has accompanied the President from Switzerland, welcome our Consul General of Switzerland um, and various invited guests of the consulate, consular representatives from, from other nations here in attendance, faculty, staff, and students from the University of Pennsylvania, and other friends uh, of the University and the President. Um, Mr. President, we all join in welcoming you and are extraordinarily grateful for your visit today. We welcome you on a day in our American political arena where all of the fractures and uncertainty of our own democracy are on full public display. The title of your talk today is Democracy and Distrust, and some, observing our present political situation, might say that we have a greater quantity of distrust than democracy at present. We welcome you at a place in our nation, the city of Philadelphia, that is foundational to our own experiment in democracy and bears a long history of collaborating with your Swiss citizens and admiring your long history of constitutional democracy, looking to Switzerland for inspiration and support. One of our own founders, John Adams, just after signing the Declaration of Independence in this city, wrote that the early government that he and his, his colleagues formed was to follow the example of the Greeks and the Swiss and form a confederacy of states, each of which must have a separate government. So from you, we take our tradition of federalism that is still very vital today. One of the delegates to the Continental Congress a few miles away in 1776 was born in Switzerland, a native of St. Gall named uh, John Zubli or Johann Zubli, who immigrated to America, became a delegate from Georgia, and published uh, an important pamphlet uh, leading up to the Declaration of Independence called Law and Liberty, a Sermon on American Affairs. He denounced all those who stood up for unlimited passive obedience and non-resistance. He had a chapter called An Account of the Struggles of Switzerland for Liberty, comparing America's resistance against Britain to Switzerland's historic struggles against the larger Austrian Empire. Noting that liberty, which is the birthright of man, is still confined only to a sm few small parts of the earth, Zubli stated that Switzerland is the only country which deserves to be called free. Later, a few years later, um, and all roads here at University of Pennsylvania lead back to our founder of the university, Benjamin Franklin, um, a Swiss citizen and a public official, Johann Valtravers, counselor of Bienne, wrote to Benjamin Franklin here in Philadelphia offering support uh, for our struggle against the United Kingdom. Uh, Valtravers wrote, let us be united, two sister republics. He proposed quote, a lasting foundation of friendship and of mutual good offices between the two sisters, the 13 Republican states of North America, and those of Switzerland. Mr. President, your visit here is builds on this lasting foundation of friendship that our forebears founded over two centuries ago in this city. And your topic, democracy and distrust, is one they would have recognized as vitally important as well. Then, as now, voices are, are raised questioning the vitality and possibility of democratic governance in this world. Um, constitutionalism and the rule of law were very fragile then, as they are now, at the time reflected only in Switzerland and the US and a few other areas. 
But our current era reminds us that these values, which you will be speaking about, remain precarious and can still be at risk. Uh, we all look forward to your thoughts on these important topics. I will now introduce two colleagues who will follow and join me in welcoming you and who are both instrumental to this event's success. Mr. President, after you speak, we appreciate your participating in a conversation with our own expert on international law, Professor Bill Burke-White, as well as one of our students, Nick Tomey. Um, who, Professor Bill Burke-White, who will introduce Nick more fully, is the Richard Perry Professor of Law and the inter, inter, inaugural director of Perry World House. He's a leading scholar of international law and, and uh, global governance and a repeat winner of our highest teaching awards here at the law school. I will now turn the podium over to another colleague who has been instrumental in this event, our Associate Dean Rangata De Silva de Aouas, um, who, who has been instrumental in envisioning this event, as well as so many other impactful programs uh, and our discourse on human rights and democracy. Rangata is Associate Dean of International Affairs here and teaches a course in international human rights and has been a leading advocate of these issues, both here and with a number of leading governments and organizations. Um, Rangita, I turn the podium over to you. Thank you. As the Dean just said, the visit of a head of state is of historic significance. We are gathered here today to honor President Alain Berset, the president of the Swiss Confederation. President Berset, you bring with you the spirit of the 73rd session of the UN General Assembly at an extraordinary time in history. You bring with you the spirit of that greatest of leaders, Nelson Mandela, whose 100th birthday you helped to mark at the United Nations. You bring with you today the spirit of Switzerland, a standard bearer of human dignity and the rule of law, a place you have called a place of extraordinary engagement, dialogue, and encounters. You bring with you the spirit of international institutions, from the Human Rights Council, to the World Health Organization, to the WTO, to the ILO. Global Geneva proudly hosts the world's leading bastions of human rights, new frontiers of medicine, international trade, and the protection of labor. On December 2017, when Alain Berset was elected president of the Swiss Confederation for 2018, what was most significant about his leadership was the way in which he took on the mantle of moral authority. In Davos in January, he fearlessly and against all odds declared 2018 the year of multilateralism and international cooperation. He called for a rejection of an isolationist approach, born out of distrust of the other. At his inauguration, President Berset made social inclusion the centerpiece of his political agenda. And he said, we sense a real danger undermining our world, our society, that is of inequality. His answer to this was a greater commitment to a rules-based international order and to honoring the culture and the cultural diversity of the world. He echoed that vision once again this week at the UN. I take this opportunity, you said, 
to stress the essential contributions of cultural diversity to building a more secure world. As the President's counselor, my dear friend Veronique Halle interprets and translates the President's vision to perfection. Veronique saw that Penn was a powerful platform for the President's vision for strengthening international cooperation and the rule of law. She knew that for her President, this visit was a tryst with destiny, a way to build bridges with a new generation of leaders who would share his values of inclusion and openness. Among nations and their people, in the words of the President, to invest in the future in educational opportunities, to increase dialogue between nations and institutions. Veroni's dedication to her president's vision and her country's moral authority in the world continues to strengthen the Swiss government's domestic and foreign policy. Thank you, Veronique, for bringing to Penn President Alain Berset, an extraordinary leader of our times, a voice of moral courage, a leader who fearlessly reminds us that by strengthening others, we also strengthen ourselves. Mr. President, this week at the UN, we saw a heightened focus on trust and distrust. And today's conversation is on democracy and distrust. The Secretary General, Secretary General Guterres said yesterday that the world was suffering from a trust deficit misorder. And you said at the UN in response, mistrust and isolation obstruct the sharing of ideas and innovations. At Penn, we are deeply invested in sharing ideas and innovations. You said, a new international order is taking shape. What is of great concern to us today is the erosion of the international system founded on the rule of law. Your visit to Penn Law, Mr. President, strengthens our shared commitment to the primacy of the rule of law. At a moment in time when international institutions are under attack, you ask the UN General Assembly to reject a nationalist isolation and to embrace a shared responsibility to strengthen international institutions. We here at Penn share those same values with you. And in the final analysis, you said, we are standing here today at the UN General Assembly because of our firm belief in an international order based on rules and dialogue. Mr. President, we are here standing with you today because each one of us believes in you and your vision. Mr. President, congratulations and welcome to Penn. Dean, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for this very impressive and uh, very warm welcome here at the University of Pennsylvania. And uh, many thanks also to the musicians for the Swiss national anthem. I must tell you the truth, and we just are here between us. Um, I think I never 
heard a so beautiful version. It was really a very, very good version, and thank you very much another time for the, for the musicians. And thank you very much also for your kind invitation to, to speak here. It is an honor and a great pleasure for me to speak at your renowned university, to speak about Switzerland, and to speak about the challenges to our democracies. Albert Einstein once said, if the world were to end, I'd prefer to be in Switzerland. <laughs> Everything happens five years later there. <laughs> and indeed, uh, ladies and gentlemen, some things do happen very slowly in Switzerland. Switzerland even took its time in deciding to join the United Nations. It's only been 16 years since the country became a member. At the third vote, and not five years after the UN was founded, but 57, 57, so you see, even Einstein got things wrong occasionally. But since then, we have been a committed member of the UN, which is appreciated, as I was able to observe when I appeared before the General Assembly in New York two days uh, ago. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, how is it that a country like Switzerland, which always holds the top spot with the US in global competitiveness and innovation rankings. How is it that Switzerland can be that slow when it comes to taking democratic decisions? Slowness does not just come naturally to Switzerland. In fact, it takes a great deal of effort to be slow. We work very hard to be that boring. <laughs> and today, in certain countries, people would be quite happy if politics was that bit more boring. Let me give you a brief outline of our legislative procedure. Allow me, if you will, to hopefully bore you in an interesting manner. In Switzerland, the government sends a draft bill out for a consultation. It gives all interested parties the opportunity to express their views. Then, the amended bill is submitted to the relevant parliamentary committee of one of the chambers in our bicameral system. Bicameral system, which we copied from you, by the way. And then to the first chamber. It then passes to the committee of the second chamber before coming before the second chamber itself. The adopted law is then subject to either an optional or compulsory referendum. That means if a political party, a group, or individual manages to gather 50,000 signatures, a popular vote is held. There, there are 5.4 million eligible voters in Switzerland, by the way. 
And with 100,000 signatories, they can submit an initiative and vote on amending the Constitution. And ladies and gentlemen, the last time it happened was five days ago. Both initiatives were rejected. And the next time it will happen is in exactly 60 days. But ladies and gentlemen, democracy in Switzerland is not just voting, but the process of consultation and compromise. And the social stability we enjoy is in no small part thanks to our political culture. The fact that four biggest parties are represented in our government. That in political terms, we are constantly in flux. That we hold heated debates and come together again afterwards. That we accept compromises despite or because of our diversity. And our diversity is almost a complicated, as complicated as our political system. We are a country with four national languages and 26 cantons. And the cantons are really like small states, which function almost autonomously in matters ranging from education, education to police. So, Switzerland is a small state consisting of 26 smaller states. And if you take a 20 minutes train ride, you will hear a different dialect or even a different language. So, ladies and gentlemen, I hope this brief overview was excitingly boring. And boredom is the most exciting, the most exciting. That also sums up the core message of John Hart Ely's legal philosophy, whose uh, most notable work, Democracy and Distrust, serves as the impulse for today's events. And the Swiss Constitution is uh, heavily inspired by the US Constitution, which is why Ely's insights also make sense to me as a Swiss. Ely was a thinker who recognized the value of institutions and democratic processes. He saw that the value of the Constitution lies in defining and protecting the democratic process that it ensures this process remains open and fair. That in itself, that in itself it's not, is not a particularly spectacular observation, but it is precise. It is precise and it is political, precisely because in political terms it is restrained. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, Switzerland is a small and open country at the heart of Europe. But Switzerland's openness to the world is by no means set in stone. 
In 2014, a public vote was held on an initiative against mass immigration. And this, initiat this initiative called for Switzerland to take back control of its immigration. As you know, we are part of the single European markets, also in respect of the free movement, the free movement of persons. Our labor market is open to 500 million Europeans. And the adoption of this initiative, the adoption of this initiative, nota bene, against the government's recommendation and against the parliament's recommendation and against the recommendation of the huge majority of the political parties. The adoption of this initiative came as a wake-up call and reminded us that our scope in terms of foreign policy shrinks when unease, unease within society manifests itself politically. In our system of direct democracy, we continually have to make the case for international cooperation and seek domestic legitimation. For only if the public has an underlying feeling of economic, social, and cultural security would it be inclined to support an open foreign policy. In November, exactly in 60 days, a popular vote will be held which will have again an impact on Switzerland's relationship with the world. It is known as the Self-Determination Initiative. And the question is one of whether Swiss law should take precedence over international law. It is a case of persuading the electorate of the advantages of being open to the world and demonstrating solidarity internationally. And we have to be able to show that we can rely on international law and that these rules are stable and fair. We are witnessing growing tensions within different societies. And in Switzerland, we are particularly aware of this because they can be expressed time and again at the ballot box. In Switzerland, we bring out the ballot boxes four times a year. And ladies and gentlemen, we vote on pretty much everything. On pre-implantation diagnostics and on unconditional basic income, on cycle pass, five days ago, it was uh, adopted and uh, on a ban on second homes, but also on the cash cow initiative, on the horned cow initiative. Well, the cash cow initiative is about car drivers who don't want to be cash cows when it comes to financing public transport. And the horned cow initiative is about real cows. 
and in November also, we will be voting on whether farmers should receive financial support for home bearing cows and goats. I'm not telling you all this to make fun of our democracy. We take all of this very seriously. Because in a direct democracy, everything is up for debate. Direct democracy is a continual debate. And this serves as a good vent for frustration. It doesn't exclude outcomes such as in the vote against mass immigration. But on the whole, feelings, feelings of resentment have less chance of growing to the point where they can easily succumb to propaganda. That means Switzerland's system of direct democracy is an early warning system. And we try systematically to decode and diffuse any public unease. And today, this decoding has become an existential question for democracies and also for international cooperation. In Switzerland, we have learned to question motives, to identify hidden agendas, and to distinguish between arguments which stand up to rational scrutiny and fake news in which reality is seen as deformable. Of course, that doesn't mean that fake news couldn't be spread in Switzerland. But it is more difficult because everything is discussed intensively. Ladies and gentlemen, we need to take the problem of fake news seriously. And when foreign powers use it to interfere in, in democratic elections, it is tantamount to an act of aggression. However, we should not allow ourselves to get quite so worked up about the fake news tsunami, which is unsettling our democracies. We should accept it as an admittedly disruptive structural change of the public sphere. The German sociologist and philosopher Jürgen Habermas, who coined the term structural change of the public sphere, Strukturwandel der Öffentlichkeit, it was in German, recently joined in the debate on social media and concluded not altogether surprisingly, that the public sphere is coming to an end. And a public sphere which primarily or even exclusively functions through mass media is indeed probably drawing to a close. But the newly emerging public sphere of countless virtual forums which very much have a bearing on political reality, this new public sphere ironically carries many of the hallmarks which Habermas himself cited in the past as a condition for non-hierarchical debates. Today, 
You no longer need economic power. You no longer need economic power to be able to take part in debates. It's even free. The public sphere in the pre-internet era was by no means free of power games. On the contrary, the gatekeepers on the editorial board determined the agenda and powerful political and economic actors had privileged access and the necessary skills to communicate effectively and thus legitimate their own position. So the internet and social media not only mean the ends of an informed public, but in terms of its disruptive force, has the same level of impact that the printing press had to the Reformation. And the Reformation was the essential prerequisite for the Renaissance and humanism, even though these developments were far from linear. Maybe to conclude, ladies and gentlemen, in the US, there is a wonderful saying, never waste a good crisis. That also applies to the fake news crisis. We have to make use of its potential. It forces us to come up with better arguments and think more clearly. But above all, for every political decision we take, we have to consider what it means for the weakest in society and if it will create losers. Whether or not they are absolute or relative losers is uh, politically irrelevant. For it is this sense of homelessness and fear of social exclusion that allows fake news to flourish. And we must not forget the most important lesson of the optimistic post-war decades. It is by strengthening others that we strengthen ourselves. In other terms, nobody needs to lose for you to win. And the world is not a zero-sum game, but with international cooperation, it is a positive-sum game. Thank you very much. Mr. President, when welcoming heads of state to Penn, I have made it a tradition to try to do so in your national language. But of course, Switzerland is a country with many national languages, so forgive me for addressing you only in English today. But it is that diversity of uh, national culture and linguistic culture of Switzerland that is so incredible that you have been able to build such a strong uh, direct democracy. 
Um, as a student of international law, I've spent a lot of time in Switzerland and am truly grateful for what your country has done to both host so many of the critical institutions of international law, and for those of us who like to ski, also hosting some of the world's best ski areas, um, but also for building a democracy that shows us what true direct democracy can be. Thank you for your lecture today. I think my colleagues on the law faculty would be delighted to welcome you to teach constitutional law here anytime you would like to after your, your service to Switzerland. One of the things that we cherish here at the University of Pennsylvania is the chance to give our incredible students uh, the opportunity to interact with leaders like yourself. And so I'm actually going to step aside and turn the floor instead to one of our fantastic students at the University of Pennsylvania, Nick Thom. Nick um, comes to us uh, from Minnesota. He served uh, in the United States Air Force uh, after graduating from the Air Force Academy uh, in Air Force Intelligence, and he's now completing a joint degree here at the University of Pennsylvania Law School and joint with the Wharton Business School. But you should also know that he has some Swiss family ties. Um, his uh, in-laws are joint U.S. and Swiss citizens and has spent a great deal of time with you in Switzerland. So thank you very much, Mr. President, for your remarks. And over to Nick to moderate a conversation that really dives into one of the greatest challenges of our time. The threats to democracy that you have highlighted from fake news, threats that emanate both internally in democracies that are in tension with themselves and externally when foreign actors and others interfere in those democracies. You have brought to us, Mr. President, some of the most important issues of our time, shown us a model of how Switzerland has been able to build strong, direct democracy, and I think there are many lessons for us here in the United States of America to learn from your leadership and from your country's model. So, Nick, over to you. Thank you very much, Professor. Mr. President, I just want to say it is an honor to be able to share the stage with you. Thank you very much for your time this afternoon. A lot of articles have been published in recent years saying that we are in the midst of a global democratic crisis and that fake news is the cause of this crisis. Do you believe that that is correct or do you believe that there are things that governments can do to avoid a potential crisis that is maybe on the way? Well, it sounds with quite a complicated question. Thank you. I think, first of all, yes, we, we can feel like a crisis of democracy. And I must say we can feel that also in Switzerland and also in Europe. And at the same time, we uh, are also able to see like a crisis of the um, multilateralism, international cooperation. And I think it's also maybe the, not exactly the same thing, but it's not a su surprise that it appears at the same, at the same time. And in Switzerland, you know, we, uh, we've seen that uh, since uh, a lot of years. I can remember we had, um, in 2008, a popular vote over the ban, on the ban of minarets, 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 you know. And uh, there was a popular vote, there was an initiative, 100,000 people gave their signatures to organize these votes, but there is no minarets in Switzerland. We don't have minorets in Switzerland. And it was like um, a sign that uh, I told that before, unease, resentment, 
fear for the future can create such uh, ideas and such developments. And we had that uh, 10 years ago. It was a positive vote against the government, against the parliament, against quite old political parties. And 10 years ago, we had to explain in France, in Germany, in Italy, how is that possible in Switzerland? 10 years later, it would be also possible in France and in Germany and in Italy. And it, this development shows that, uh, yes, I think we are like in a, a kind of crisis. It is related to the fragmentation of the political debates and also uh, related to, to, related to a crisis of the uh, traditional media, traditional media and uh, development of social media and mass, mass media. And I think it is uh, probably the cause of this, this development. Thank you very much. To go on that point, having had to deal with a lot of these issues in Switzerland for years at a time and really understanding how to potentially tackle the problems that fake news present, what lessons do you think the Swiss direct democracy system can potentially bring forward for the rest of the international community as they attempt to deal with the issues that fake news brings? Well, we, we have different answers, different response to this, to this problem in Switzerland. And one, one of them is the direct democracy. But direct democracy is not so easy to export, you know. It's a Swiss product. And, um, well, the many Swiss products are exportable, but not, not really the direct democracy. It's not so easy. But we have also other uh, answers. An example is uh, education. Education, 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 and also education, not only uh, about uh, how uh, the institutions for functions uh, and uh, how, we, uh, how democracy works, but also, uh, well, how we have to deal with the, the new media, for example. And uh, education is probably a key. Um, and in Switzerland, also federalism. Federalism helps us to have the debate also on the local, uh, local level, on the village level, on the canton level in a small country. And uh, this social inclusion also for the debate is, uh, I think, is a good, uh, a good way to, uh, to make the difference between information and fake news and, uh, and, to, and to deal with this, these issues. Thank you very much. Now, some governments, such as France, have attempted to respond to the fake news crisis by passing anti-misinformation legislation and regulation. Do you believe that this is a valid course of action, or should governments attempt to avoid this if possible? No, I don't. Uh, I think France, uh, I, I can understand the debate and the discussion in France, but I think it is, uh, it is not the right way to, to, uh, to manage the, the, this issue. Um, you know, uh, well, I, I can remember also that um, George Orwell created in 1984 the Ministry of Truth. And that's an interesting question to know if it's, it's uh, the role of the government to uh, define uh, what is true and what is not true. I think it is dangerous. And that means it is probably not possible for a government or for a country to, uh, to combat this situation or to manage this situation with fake news by uh, doing, doing laws. Now, I think much more education is a key. 
independent media are key and also diversity in the in the in the media in the independent media and it's also a problem that we have in switzerland you know, with four languages very small country it's not so easy for us to have this strong media there is also a crisis of the media in switzerland print media first of all and we have at the moment a discussion about how what can we do uh, in order to support this independence of the media and to have strong independent media maybe with uh, money, maybe with uh, subventions, but also that it's not so easy because you take in, indirectly an influence. Uh, but this, this discussion is, is ongoing. Thank you very much. Now, when you look and you discussed fake, fake news and misinformation, there seems to be two categories of misinformation, essentially state-sponsored misinformation where a foreign power is attempting to make some ends happen in another country and then private citizen or private company misinformation. Do you think that countries should deal with these avenues of misinformation separately and maybe treat a state-sponsored event like a act of a cyber attack or some other nefarious action or should it be something that they let their citizens decide and, and really identify truth effectively? Well, I think uh, maybe the, 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 the main, I, I'm not sure I understood your question, you know, because it's also the role of the private sector and what happens in, in the market in the, with private companies. I think, you know, fake news is, is not new. We, we always had, uh, well, information, misinformation, uh, uh, half through, half through information. It was always the case. New is today that it is possible for everyone to uh, to spread such uh, information with, uh, with with the social media. Uh, Twenty years ago, it was really complicated to uh, to, uh, to, uh, to to spread information and to to to, uh, to give information. It was really really um, um, expensive to do that, and very few uh, organizations or people uh, were able were able before to doing that. Now it's not more the case. And I think, uh, well, the collaboration with the private sector is probably an important thing. But in Switzerland, at least, it's not, it's not, not really a big issue at the moment. No, thank you. That was actually a perfect answer to the question. <laughs> when, uh... Thank you for us. <laughs> <laughs> Will I pass the exam? <laughs> yes, sir. Thanks. That, that, most definitely, Mr. President. When, uh, <laughs> to kind of follow up on that, when you look at a necessary requirement for citizens to make educated voting uh, habits, they need honest factual reporting. Do you believe that in a world where more and more people receive their news from social media, technology companies that essentially utilize algorithms to keep them on the website, that you know, true factual reporting can win out? And how can we potentially set up a system where truth and fact can, in fact, win the day? Well, well there, there is, uh, there is uh, obviously a, a need for uh, ethic, ethic in, 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 the, in the information system, in the information in the media. And I think the quality of the information is not uh, automatically uh, uh, depending from the media. 
it would be probably possible also to have high-quality information uh, in, in, the, in, the, in the social, uh, not in the social media maybe, but also with the, uh, with the, in the app, or in the, on the phone, or to, 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 uh, to, to become these informations. And I think we, we well, there is, there is a need today to have the, the high quality of the information also in, in that new media. I see my children, my children, they, they, don't, they don't read the newspaper more. Newspaper, they, they, they just informed, are informed by the, by the apps on the, on the phone. And uh, the most important thing is probably to have the, this quality of the information also on the apps and not only on the newspaper. I must tell you, you know, 50 years ago, uh, there were a lot of fake news in the newspaper in Switzerland because we had a lot of uh, newspapers, they were uh, strong. Uh, strong uh, under pressure of the polit of different political parties, and we have to, to to make a difference between the quality of the information and the media. No, thank you so much. Now you've talked a lot about education and allowing young people, adults, to really understand the sources of their information. Are there any programs either within Switzerland or in other countries that are working to get at this problem and educate youth or the public effectively? Well, we have in Switzerland a system with 26 cantons, and the cantons are, uh, have the, they are responsible for the, for the education, you know, and they are able to, they develop the programs and they, they try to coordinate the programs between the cantons. Quite complicated, but they do that. And, um, well, we have to invest there. We have to invest there. And, but, but saying that, I know that uh, it's maybe not just coherent what I am telling you, because we had on the national level also a program, Youth and Media, and um, it, I, th I think which, well, there, is no, there are no media here. We are between us. But there was a wrong decision of the federal government one year ago when we cut the, we cut the, 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 the budget for this for this for those programs, and I think we have to correct we have to correct that because uh, we see that there is a need more investment in order to to help to educate to to make a good education for the the young people uh, how to deal with with media how to deal with media and I, I think it is also related with the budget you have and to develop. Uh, well, uh, coherence of the programs, um, well, at school. I think it, it is necessary to start very, with very young, uh, young children, you know. I see for my children, they were confronted at the age of eight, nine, with the social media, with internet, but they, and, and I was able to explain what does it mean and uh, how to, to, to deal with the situation. But uh, without the parents, uh, it, it would have been very complicated for the children doing the, to do that. No, thank you so much. And I know there's a lot of people that are interested in asking you questions as well. So my last question is, uh, before we move on to their questions, could you just kind of quickly summarize some uh, of your main conclusions on what governments and citizens can do to combat misinformation and fake news? Sorry. Sorry. Um, if you have any solutions and ways forward for governments and citizens to solve the fake news problem, 
if you wouldn't mind sharing those before our, uh, we open the floor to questions. Okay. So, education, to accept debate, not to reject fake news, but to deal with and uh, to bring better arguments and to try to speak, I mean, I'm, maybe I'm not a model today, but to try to speak more clearly, to be clear, to be clear, to be clear, to be, to be easy to understand and, uh, and to accept the debate. And maybe, you know, what, what, we, uh, what we do now in Switzerland with uh, these four, four terms, four, four, four votes per, per year, next time in 60 days, last time five days ago, uh, it allows us to have a perpetual debate in Switzerland. And it is also a good way for the education for the, for the people, you know, because they are uh, able to, 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 to have a discussion about all, all, the political, uh, all the political issues we have. And it is, I think, a good way to combat the fake news. No, thank you so much. And I just want to say that I thought your speech was incredibly uh, profound at the first part and uh, really left me searching for questions because you answered over half of them that I had on my sheet here. <laughs> so uh, thank you very much. So I passed the exam. Thank you very much. Thank, thank you, Nick, for, for those great questions. Uh, Mr. President, I am uh, struck by two aspects of, of your answer. One is around the power of education. The other around the potential of perpetual debate. Uh, this is an institution, the university, that certainly believes in that first value, education. Uh, and the idea of perpetual debate is something that I hope our country can relearn from, from yours. Debate was born here in Philadelphia in the United States with our constitutional process and something we need so urgently to have more of. Um, I now want to broaden the conversation to include a few other student discussants. So I think our first uh, student discussant is uh, Allison Reynolds. Uh, thank you so much, Mr. President. Sorry, uh, it works now. Uh, thank you so much for being here with us today. Uh, in your remarks to the UN General Assembly on Tuesday, you voiced concern about the growth of nationalist isolationism. Um, how then should we and can we safeguard the integrity of our international institutions? Thank you for your question. You know, inter international institutions and the United Nations, it is a incredible positive development uh, the after the, the Second World War. Very positive developments and for a country like Switzerland, I must tell you, and for the huge majority of the countries, it is extremely important to have um, international rules, they are stable and, uh, and, and reliable. Rule of law, not only in a country, but also on an international level, for us, for Switzerland, is extremely important. We are not a huge country, we are not a superpower, but we are not very micro country. We are a country with 8.5 million inhabitants. We have a lot of contacts economically, culturally, with other countries, and uh, our prosperity is strong depending on those, those good contacts. 
and without uh, reliable rules and international rules, it is not possible for us to have the legal certainty, to have the stability to, 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 make, to make that. And I mean, this, this is true for the huge majority of the countries. It, I was really impressed two days ago uh, by the, um, the speech of the uh, President of the United States. As you know, maybe I met President Trump in Switzerland in uh, last January. And uh, I was really impressed because uh, I can share a part of the analysis, but I can't share the answers. When he told, for example, illegal migration is a problem, uh, trafficking of human beings is a problem, it's true. But the answer is precisely the global compact on migration. And he told after that, we don't want a global compact on migration. We have to make such debates. That's what, it was for me really important. He was really critic against the international organization, but he was there and he stayed there. It was quite complicated to, um, to uh, in, in the city, you know, to, to with the cars, it was quite complicated to, to, to reach the United Nations. And I, I noted he, he stayed for, for, for several days to meet people. And it was, that's, that's really important. What can we do? Well, I think to explain the importance of the international organizations for us, for our well-being, for our um, um, well-development and good situation, and to accept the debate. To accept the debate and uh, to go on. To accept the debate and to uh, find majorities and to, uh, to explain, to find arguments and to develop these this institutions. It's not the first time in history that we have like, um, well, uh, development in the other, in the wrong, wrong way, maybe. But it's, it can happen. On the long-standing development of the, of the UN, it was always positive, and I think it will remain so. It will remain so. We have to be there and to accept the debate, even if it's difficult. Thank you. So as an international lawyer, Mr. President, your answer is a true breath of fresh air. I look forward to the day that an American leader of any political party defines a problem and says the solution is an international treaty and international organization. So thank you for reaffirming the value of, of what I work on and study. Uh, our next student discussant uh, is um, Alison Perlin. Hi, Mr. President. Thank you so much for being here today to, to have this important discussion. Um, my question is, is recently New York Times publisher A.G. Sal Sal um, Salzberger spoke about the danger of fake news to journalists in conflict zones. And I wonder if you can reflect on Switzerland's place as a beacon um, to protecting journalists and, and really vulnerable communities across the world. All right. That's a very important issue. Uh, how, how, how are we able to, to receive also uh, information of good quality also from the conflict zones? And as you know, Switzerland is very really strong involved uh, on an international level, also with the global Geneva, international Geneva. We are strong involved with our tradition, humanitarian tradition, with our tradition also for, uh, for uh, 
well, uh, offering platform for dialogue and offering platform for mediation. It is really important to, uh, for, for us that to, we, it, we are able also to receive the good, the good information. I think there are international, very good international organizations working on that. Um, Reporters Sans Frontières, I, I know the, the, name, the, name, the name in French, for example, they try always to, uh, to uh, also to, to bring this issue on an international, international level. And I think probably the answer here is to have a good collaboration between different international organi organizations working on the field, you know. And I was today with, uh, with uh, Peter Maurer, president of the, um, how is it, ICRC? You know, it's in, right in English, president of the ICRC. They are strong involved in the and conflict zones, they are able to go there to, to have the contacts with the people. They have a good reputation that allows to, to have those, those contacts. And I think the collaboration between ICRC, for example, with uh, international organizations and also the organizations they are dedicated to, uh, to protect journalists uh, on, the, on the conflict zone, it is possible to maybe to, to, to try to have a, a, better, a better situation. But it is an issue and we have to take care with the information we receive. We have to um, we have to to stay to remain um, critic against uh, with all the information we receive and to control the information and to cross to cross uh, different sources for information. You have highlighted the importance of coordination and engagement across international organizations, and I want to recognize the incredibly important role Switzerland plays, particularly Geneva, but the whole country, in being a place that international organizations and NGOs can come together for exactly the kind of dialogue you've stressed the importance of. So thank you for that. Thank you. Our final student discussant is uh, Ted Lausen. Thank you very much, Mr. President. I must say first that I think Nick did a phenomenal job. That's not an easy thing to do, especially with such an impressive cast. We sat next to each other in a whole bunch of classes last year, so I felt like I, I owed him something. Uh, thank you for such a great talk. Um, direct democracy demands the engagement of the individual. It is unbelievable what you've been able to cultivate in Switzerland. How do we inspire that type of engagement or engender that enthusiasm across 300 million people here in the United States? Maybe I can uh, explain or tell you a bit more about how it works in Switzerland, because uh, as I told you before, it's not so easy to, I think it's not so easy to export. And I know that, uh, that in, uh, in the United States, the United States is also a, a huge direct democracy. More on the state level, not in all states, with, with a lot of differences, but uh, it is also the same system, basically. And um, in Switzerland, you know, um, maybe I was too positive about our direct democracy. And I must just now tell you the truth about direct democracy. <laughs> now, it works well, but uh, we must also note that uh, we have not, we don't have uh, a participation of 100% of the voters. And we had a bad example last week, or five days ago, last Sunday, with participation of about 
40, I think 40%. That means 60% they stay at home. And, um, but I think they are happy with the situation. You know? They think we are doing a good job. No, that's the point. Participation is a very important issue. It's not so easy. And, but that's true. It is uh, strong uh, related to individuals. And we need individuals ready to, uh, to go to, to, go to not, not only to go to votes, but also to participate to debates. To participate to the debates. And it is also one, one more time related with our political system our political system of participation on the local level, you know, we have uh, also people engaged in the local uh, communities to, uh, to, uh, well, to work for the community, and also making debates on the local, on the local level. For, I can also give my example, maybe. I started as a local politician in the village, my small village with 2,500 inhabitants. And after that, I came on the, on the canton level, state level. And after that, I, were, I went to the, to, the, to, the, to the national level. And a second point, maybe really important, it's not only related to, to politics. It is also related to uh, social participation, also to uh, uh, engagement in, uh, in sports. You know, I, I, I know I, I didn't was elect because I was good as a politician. Nobody, nobody, nobody knew uh, if I will go, uh, do a good job or not. I was elect because I was known in the sports, in the sport um, fields, in the uh, athletics, you know? And I had a very good, uh, good contacts with a lot of different people and they vote for me. I, mean, I just want to tell you with that as a, 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 social engagement and also to be to be involved in, in social uh, activities, in sport activities, to be related with real people, not only with screen, but with real people. It is a good start point to uh, to to have a good a good debate and to have the direct democracy and to have this this possibility to confront different ideas, different point of views. So President Berset has kindly agreed to take a few questions from the general audience. So uh, if you have a question, please raise your hand and a uh, microphone will come your way. Uh, Bill over in the far corner. And if you would very, very briefly identify yourself and I would ask that your question quickly end in a question mark. Thank you, Mr. President. Uh, my name is Bill Fadulo. I am a third year law student. Uh, my question uh, regards your discussion um, of fake news as a problem of education. And I wonder if the issue is not so much, um, epistemic is not so much related to, um, the, fa to the facts on the ground, but whether uh, there may be more room to engage on the substantive questions that there is actually an underlying belief that may be very negative for society, but it is in fact a belief. Um, and I wonder what you think the limits of responding to this crisis of democracy through education in fact versus education values are. Thank you. How do you use education to overcome what might be a difference in values or beliefs 
Education can teach us facts, uh -huh. but where societies are divided on their values, how can education help resolve that? You know, I, I think I didn't really understand the question because with the diversity we have in Switzerland, um, I think it is not possible for us to make a, a link between facts and values. We are really strong involved in a democracy where we, we know that uh, there are very huge diversity of point of views. We have also debates between the languages, you know. I'm working in Bern in German and at home in French and uh, it's quite difficult also because the, the concepts and the values are not the same. They are not, not, uh, not the same, you know. And I think education is not here to bring solutions, but maybe to bring some basic, basic values and after to, to, to give, a, to give a, like a, a strong uh, uh, soil where it is possible for each individual to build his personality and to build also his uh, system, of, uh, system of values. I think that's, that's, the, that's the role of the education, not to give the solution, not to give the values, but to give the key, how can I reach, well, a system of value, can I develop a system of value um, with, with my, my own um, reflections. Um, and this diversity, in, you know, in Switzerland, we, we, uh, we all, always say that there is a, a country uh, constituted by, by minorities. We have only minorities in Switzerland. That means uh, we are, I, I am in the minority with my language, French, I am minority with my political party, uh, I am in the minority with my religion in Switzerland, and we have always only different minorities. And it helps maybe to be open to other minds, also to other values, also to other reflections, and to try to, 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 to take something for, for my own reflections with that. Other questions? Uh, Professor Etogier. Because it's a huge population of Swiss that live abroad. And every three months we get an envelope and we can vote. What is you mean impact? which impact from the Swiss living abroad on, on, the, yes. on the decision in Switzerland? Yes. Do we make a difference? If we make a difference. We, do the expats. Swiss citizens uh -huh, yeah, living yeah. abroad who get asked to vote every right. six months matter in the deliberative democracy? I think, I think well, in, in, the, in, the, in all the cases that I have in mind, uh, the results just for the Swiss living abroad was more or less the same that in the country. It was more or less the same always with an exception. And the exception is when the vote is related to the relation between the Switzerland and other countries or international community. In that case, the Swiss living abroad can make a difference. And they can make a difference, sorry for, for this, uh, for, for, for this uh, uh, kind of, uh, uh, sorry for the, um, this personal view of, of, of me uh, in, in, the, in, the right, in the right direction. Okay, thank you. I think we can take uh, probably one final question, yes. 
Thank you for coming. My name is Justin Prelogger. I'm a second year law student. Um, I'm curious, you spoke about the importance of international organizations. And I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about how you balance the importance of cooperation across the globe with some of the potential difficulties um, domestically uh, with democracy and um, being attentive to your citizenry um, mm -hmm. and where those tensions may exist. There is a strong link between uh, what a country can do uh, internationally and uh, what is, uh, it happens uh, in, in the country. And we, we've seen that in Switzerland. It is not possible to have and to develop an open foreign policy without to have a strong support in the country. And in Switzerland, in order to have this support, this support we have to also to uh, also to develop an inclusive inclusive policy in a, in a, a policy for social inclusion in Switzerland. And it's very interesting to see that with the finance finance crisis, you know, 2008, we were a strong well, involved in the in the in this, this finance crisis. And it was possible in Switzerland, we were able not to have a gap, uh, a bigger gap between uh, low and high income after the finance crisis, like in a lot of other countries. We were able with our own policies, social inclusion, to manage this situation and to, to have a, a occurrence, a good, a good situation for all people in the country. And when the, the people feel they have perspective for the future, for the future they have good possibilities to develop uh, uh, himself. It is also possible to have, a, well, to, to be open to, to, uh, to, to developments for the future, to be open to also for an open foreign policy in the country. And now, um, after that, it's also a very important point that we have Geneva in Switzerland. It means that we have also a, a debate on the importance of the, social, of the international cooperation, uh, on the importance of the international institutions, and it is very well known in Switzerland. It helps, probably. Uh, well, it's the same case here. You have New York, and New York is bigger for the international community as Geneva. But the United States is much bigger than Switzerland, I know that. So I've been told we have time for actually one final question before the president needs uh, to leave us. Um, well, I, I, am, I was hoping to see, yes ma'am, over here. I feel like we've only been calling on men and I wanted to make sure we brought in with three of us on the stage. Uh, Thank you so much for being here and talking to us today. I'm Radhika, I'm an LLM student here at Penn Law. And uh, the discussion about fake law gave me the sense that we're, uh, sorry, fake news uh, gave me the sense that we're looking at fake news as a country-specific issue. And I was wondering what your thoughts are on whether the time is now to acknowledge it as an international issue, and what role can international organizations play in tackling uh, fake news? You know, I think we are talking a lot about fake news, but another time, it is not new. It is not something new. Um, it, there were always fake news, uh, half true stories, and uh, maybe the, the, the new situation is that it is possible to um, to to uh, to uh, to send this fake news all 
everywhere very uh, easily with the, with, the, with the mass media. And I think that, that we have this debate, that we have the, those discussions about what means fake news, what means the fight against fake news, it is the best education program we can have. It is probably the best education program we can have. And I think our generation is facing face new, uh, fake news and we don't really know how we, we can manage this, this, uh, this issue. But for the next generation, it will be, I'm sure, not a problem. Because they will be aware of the situation. They will maybe uh, be more critic about information. You know, for my generation, what I read in the paper what always the, was always the truth. And for my children, it is no, no more the case. I think that to have these discussions and to, 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 to have the debates about fake news is probably the, one of the best answers to, the, to, this, to this, uh, this phenomenon. So on that note, I want to thank you, President Pesert, on the behalf of the University of Pennsylvania, and particularly the University of Pennsylvania Law School, for joining us today. I also want to thank you for your incredibly thoughtful remarks and answers to hard questions from our rather smart students who have, uh, who have tough ones for you. And I want to thank you and Switzerland for reminding us of the power of deliberative democracy and providing us with a model for how the direct engagement of citizens, the continued debate that you have fostered in Switzerland, can reinform and re-empower democracy here in the birthplace of American democracy. So please join me in thanking the President for coming to Penn today. One of, one of the downsides of being a head of state is that work doesn't stop. And I understand that the president has to get on uh, his flight back uh, to be in Bern for work tomorrow morning. So I'm going to ask that the rest of us remain seated in the room while the president and his party depart, uh, and then you'll be free to leave thereafter. Thank you all once again. <laughs>